We have th- four scriptures this morning to uh, share with you this morning that Pastor Mike will be preaching through later. The first one comes from Proverbs 21, verse 13, and it reads this way, Whoever shuts their ears to the cry of the poor will also cry out and not be answered. And secondly, from Philippians 2, verse 4, Not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. And then 1 John 3, 17 through 18. If anyone has material possessions and sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? Dear children, let us not love with words or speech, but with actions and in truth. And then from James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers and sisters, if someone claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can such faith save them? Suppose a brother or a sister is without clothes and daily food. If one says to them, go in peace, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about their physical needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. These are our scriptures for this morning. Let's go to the Lord in prayer today. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you love us so much. We thank you for your goodness. We give you thanks today. Because, Lord, in this world there are great pains and tribulations, but, Lord, we take heart because you've overcome this world. God, as we gather together to worship you, may we feel your Holy Spirit. May we feel the transforming power of the gospel wash over our hearts. Lord, may we be aware of the great plans that you have for us. Lord, we lift up today those among us who've been struggling with health issues this week, who've been hospitalized. We think of Bill Thomas. And Lord, we lift up Buster Pate, Vi Brislon, and Joni Witzel. And we ask, Lord, that you would continue to help their bodies recover. And Lord, for those with ongoing treatment, Lord, we pray for Doug Emerson and Gary Bolden, that your spirit of healing and comfort would come to them. And also for those mourning the death of a loved one, Myrna Carter, whose twin sister Mary passed away, and Jim Beese, whose dad Glenn died on Friday. Father, we ask for a special measure of comfort and grace to fall upon these families, Lord. And Lord, for all of us, may we today encounter the living God. May we let our hearts be open before you, Jesus, that you might have your way in us. Lord, all these prayers that we lift to you, those that we've spoken here and those on our hearts, we lift to you in the name of the one, Jesus, who when asked, how should we pray, answered this way. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Good morning. This is kind of, a, I want to take a minute as we uh, transition from what we've been doing to where we're going. And uh, I want to, first of all, cast thanks towards the Board of Trustees of First United Methodist Church of Marion for, for seeing kind of the vision of, of where it is we feel we're going with the church and see how it is we thought we could uh, 
take this beautiful architecture and add a little bit of a contemporary flavor to it. So I know it's the first thing and you're still getting your mind around it, but I want to thank the trustees for doing all that work, for seeing that vision, doing a lot of help. And actually there's a rail up here that looks like it's been here for the 115 years of the church that they made, thanks to Reagan Huckfeld uh, for doing all that work to make it look just like it's always been here. So uh, as we learn how to run these things better, you'll really, I think, uh, come to, to feel some... Uh, Uh, usefulness in what we're doing. Uh, Secondly, I want to cast attention to this uh, beautiful floral bouquet, which is our fall fall floral bouquet here at the church. Um, Emily Palmer, one of our uh, members who's sitting right over there, has gone to school to learn how to do floral design, and she made this for us, so give her some love. That's awesome. That's pretty. Good job. Good job. Thank you, uh, Emily. So, I'd encourage you to find that little uh, half sheet of paper that's in your bulletin, the white one. Uh, On the back side of it, it says, uh, because we believe we do, and then there's a big block of uh, room for for notes, and then some some printing down at the bottom. Uh, Last year or so, as we started the Healthy Church Initiative, and we embraced the, the mission of the church is the making of disciples of Jesus Christ for the transformation of the world, our discipleship pathway group said, you know, we better be able to define what a disciple is. So that's the working definition of what we believe a disciple to be right there in the back of your, your bulletin. And we're, Pastor Keith and I are working through it uh, very deliberately through the fall so that we might, you know, um, grab hold of that and, and live it out. So we've come to the point on there now where it says a disciple cares about the needs of all the people in the world. Because we believe, we do. We, we, we care about the needs of all the people in the world. And I'm going to start with this. Caring, I believe, comes from our seeing. We can only care about the things that we see, both spiritually and physically. I'm a social science graduate. I graduated with a degree of, in, in psychology from I was in years ago. And so I'm always interested in social movements. I'm always interested in, in how the human mind is working. And I want to tell you about a study that I've read uh, pretty thoroughly in preparation for this. And I admonish you to kind of take a look at it too if you're Googling around this afternoon looking for something to do. The University of Michigan took 72 studies on other college campuses regarding the issue of compassion And smashed them all together. The results over a 30-year period of time. To grow this thing together. Using questions that social scientists use. Like. If one of your brothers or sisters or friends is in need. Will you drop what you're doing to go help them right now? The answer to that is less compassionate today than it was 30 years ago. They ask questions like. If you see a person in your circle of friends or family that has a problem. Do you push back from the problem, try to see it in their shoes, and see why they might be acting the way they are? You know, it's questions like that. The bottom line is simply this, and we're not surprised by this in the world, but the result is that people are less compassionate, and I will make part of the case is because they see less. And so I'm going to spend the first few minutes of our time together at our 11 o'clock service talking about how we see things and how we see the world using three images. So here's our first point today. What do you see? Over here on this far uh, easel, I have a piece of, of wood that our houses are made of, you know, particle board or pressed wood. And so I make the case that one of the ways we see the world is in our own box. You know, 
We see our box. You know, if I stand behind here, most of you lose sight, at least of my face and that sort of thing, because it's hard to see out of a box. Now, now it's not strange that we build boxes. We need some comfort, so we build rooms and all that sort of thing. Nowhere can this be seen uh, better. I've never been to, to, to Europe to see those castles and stuff. But, but where groups of people built castles with huge walls, first to keep part of the world out, but also to have comfort on the inside. Now, the good thing about a box is, at least to some degree, you feel safe inside. On the other hand, you can't see out. Because what you see is what's right in front of you. And when we do that with our lives, what we see is, we, we take what we see in front of us, and so if we see, hey, everything in our little world, and we all have little worlds, we all do, that's, that's part of our lives, in our small group of people, in our small people, you know, box that we've built for ourselves, if everything's in relative terms all right, then we tend to extrapolate that and make an assumption about the rest of the world and say, well, the rest of the world must be all right too. And we don't see ISIS, and we don't see Ebola, and we don't see, you know, unemployment. We don't see all the things that are plaguing others that are just a little bit outside of our box. So, so one way we see the world is, is in our box. Now, if you come over here, this is another way we see the world. Not hard to figure out. You know what a selfie is? Yes, you do. Everybody knows what a selfie is. Now, a selfie, by its definition, is a picture of yourself. I, I asked if anybody in the church had taken a selfie, and one of my grandmas reached out at 8.30 and took a picture of themselves. I'm like, okay, I get it, all right? We, 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 taking a selfie is seeing the world through, through the lenses of yourself, putting yourself first. You know, and of course, I've seen hundreds of selfies. You know, I seem to get them on Snapchat and all this. And they, they seem to be, you know, there's only about 20 different ways of doing it. There's the peace sign selfie. There's the duck face selfie. There's all the selfies by some famous place. And here's how it gets out at hand. In the, in the, on the freeway between Miami and, and Orlando, some of you have driven that three-hour stretch, tons of traffic. Well, just last week, you can go out on social media and find this, there were some students from the University of uh, Central Florida driving up that stretch back to Orlando, and they came upon this huge wreck. I mean, people were injured, fire trucks, ambulances, a lot of police around there. People were in peril. These students parked their car on the side of the road, ran across the, the busy highway, stood in front of the accident with the people on stretchers behind it, took a selfie, got back in their car and drove off, and then put it on Instagram and, and social media. So, so I'm part of it, but I'm not part of it. They see the world as like, oh, you know, here I am by the accident scene that you'll all see on the 10 o'clock news. Well, here, here's the thing. At least there's still enough compassion in the world that this, a lot of students at Central Florida are pretty torqued about their classmates doing that. But the fact of the matter is, when we see the world just with what we see in the mirror, when we get up in the morning and we say, mirror, mirror on the wall, or selfie, selfie in my pocket, we have a hard time being compassionate. We get competitive because we want our selfies to look better than somebody else's selfies. Or we want to see what we see in the mirror look better than what somebody else sees in the mirror. And what happens is the mirror vision or selfie vision leads us to see nobody but ourselves. So when you see the world just through yourself, you miss a lot. Now, let me look at this third way of seeing the world. I, I want you to look out on your world. 
Now, not surprisingly, the image where the Marian Methodist sticker is, is the winner, right? You know, I, I would like us to, to say we have a window church. I would have, I, I would have liked to, to, to say, I would have loved to drug my front porch in here and say you need to, to see the world, your world, through a window church, a window person, to a, be a front porch person where you, you stand out there and you see what you see. And I'll tell you this, when you stand on your front porch or when you stand at your window, you can see all three. You can see yourself. You can see your small part of the world and you can see all the rest of it too. You can see everything that's out there when you look at your world. And, and you can see that connection between what you see right there and what you must be about as a disciple. Paul writes in Philippians something about this. He, he, looks in, he writes in chapter 2, Let each of you look not only at his own interests, but also the interests of others. That's a little bit counterintuitive. Let me tell you, Pastor Keith is always better at at telling you and exposing to you a little bit of, of his sin than some of the rest of us are that stand here. Not because he has more. He probably has less. But I want to tell you a little bit about where I've missed the point on, on all this, where to look and how to look. A number of years ago, 15 years ago, the same as here, I wrote front page newsletter articles. Pastors do that. You know, We try to inspire our congregation, try to move them along on the vision, stuff like that. That's what that's all about. But I'd written an article, and, and one of my dear saints, a member of the church, older than me, came in. And, of course, he did what, like most all older saints in the church do when they want to help the pastor along. He told me three things I was doing really well. He says, Pastor Mike, you're doing this, this, and this really well. And I'd like you to take a look at your newsletter article. And he held up my newsletter article, which was six pa- paragraphs long. And he'd circled the word I 15 times in the article I'd written. Because that's how many times we're in it. He says, I think your focus needs to move a little bit further out, Mike. Message received. If we just see through our own words, we don't see others. It's intuitive for us to look at our own self. It's, It's intuitive for us to look at our own stuff. And God calls us to the counterintuitive. He calls us to see the other. Constantly through scriptures, see the other, bless the other, look at to the needs of others. In Proverbs 21, verse 13, fling that up there, girls. Whoever closes his ear to the cry of the poor will himself call out, that means call out to God and not be answered. But call out to God and not be answered. See, far before you do anything, far before you do anything, you have to see. Let me give you a little example. Um, you know, at this church, I want to tell you guys, you guys are liberal in your generosity to the Friendship Fund. The Friendship Fund is a fund that Keith and I and Vicki administrate here at the church. It comes from our Christmas Eve offerings. It blesses people with things like gas cards to, to get gas to go to work, it, uh, heating bills, electric bills, maybe a little groceries here or there. It, we've bought some work boots, stuff like that. It's really helped people in our community, and I want to thank you for that. And and I would not be overestimating, I don't think, to say that most days of the week, because of where our office is located on Old Highway 151, the main street through our city, that most every day of the week, someone comes into our offices, the offices of your church, needing or asking for some sort of help. 
daily need help. Other churches are no different than ours if they're in busy places. The last church I served before I came here was one like that. We were in downtown, old downtown church just like this on the main flow of traffic in that little city and people would come in with some regularity. We didn't have the kind of traffic that Cedar Rapids does but in Webster City we had some traffic. And, and, and I remember one day I was getting ready to go to a vacation Bible school meeting and some of the folks were beginning to collect. And, and this family came in, young family, uh, husband, wife, three little kids. And, and they hadn't been bathed as recently as everybody else in the room and, and certainly not some of the people. They, they had an older car, 20 years, and it was rotten out with rust and all that kind of stuff. But they were right there in the kind of the narthex of the church, ready to go to a meeting in my office. And there were a couple people that couldn't help but see and be part of the conversation because that was where we were at, this young man telling me how he had gotten in the situation he was in. He was talking to me about all they needed, Pastor, was a few things to get through the day, some, some food and stuff like that. They were a couple days from paycheck, all that kind of thing. And I took time, and I'm sure, which would be what we do, and, and blessed him as much as I could with the assets and resources that that church had and, and, and <clears throat> probably said a prayer with them and, and sent them on her way. And this woman named Diane, who was part of the church, and she'd come from the VBS meeting, which was now a couple minute, minutes late, all that. she drank all this in. And she walked in here and she says, has that ever happened before? I'm like, what, what, what? She said, well, somebody come in and ask you for help. I said, Diane, it happens in the church all the time. She says, Really? She says, I've been coming to this church my entire life. And she was about 50 at that time. And she said, I've never seen it ever. I said, well, you know, it happens all the time. She said, I've never seen it before. I said, well, here's the question for you, Diane. Now that you've seen it, what are you going to do about it? She says, a lot. I'm going to do a lot. Three, four months later, I'm in, a, I'm in a meeting with a bunch of other pastors and a bunch of other lay people that Diane had called together and said, we're going to get organized as the churches in this community and we're going to work together to help the transient and the, and the indigenous poor in our community get by from day to day. And more than that, we're going to try to help them pull themselves up a little bit. And from there, we started partnering with the Upper Des Moines Mission Opportunity Center. And what would happen then? Here's what changed. And I'm going to go with the word magnificent on this. What changes if someone would come in and ask me for something, I'd say, hey, can you meet with a group tonight or tomorrow? And it'd be a group of three people, and there were 17 or 18 of them that got in these small groups so they could meet about every night of the week. So it wasn't hard to call them together. I said, could you meet with a group tonight and kind of tell them that story? Because they can help you more than I can. Now, a couple things that happened then. That would usually thin out the people who were just looking to buy weed or something like that. You know, that would get them out of the mix because they thought, no, I don't want to meet with anybody else. Just, you know, trying to scam you, Pastor. But to others, I mean, it is what it is, you know. It's the world. Um, and so others, though, would meet with these small groups of Methodists and Lutherans and Catholics and all that, and they'd meet together. And what the lay people did, way back to what Diane was passionate about, was they would listen to the people's story, which a lot of times is what people need, is just to be heard, completely heard. And they would help them financially, and they would sometimes help them socially or with a connection here or there to help them try to pull their, themselves up by their own bootstraps with a little bit of help and go from the various churches in the community. And I, and I don't know the actual statistical analysis, but I know that there was a lot more success 
rate, a higher success rate, helping people get along by themselves because someone saw the need that they'd never seen before and knew that they had to do a lot for it. See, we have to see what's going on there. And the question to us always when we say, what do we see is, now that you've seen it, what are you going to do about it? Now, Pastor Keith's a pretty bright guy, and he and I have talked a lot about kind of how the church works. And we kind of come up with a simplistic lifestyle around here. When stuff comes up, we say three things. What's the problem? What's God want us to do about it? And will we do it? So we're following that same method on our sermon today. So the second point is this. Once we've seen the problem, what does God want you to do about what you see? See, of course, you always start by praying for vision before you're able to do anything or before you want to do. I mean, pray, 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 pray. When you see a need, man, start praying for it. And then, check this out, 1 John uh, 3. We read this earlier today. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word and talk, but in deed and truth. So the second point when we say, what does God want you to do about what you see? You know, we have to understand the fact that faith is not an intellectual assent. It's just not an intellectual agreement. We agree with our head. We agree with a set of Christian teachings. It's more than that because just agreeing with that, that leads us to incompleteness. It leads, leads us incomplete. See, education always has to lead to action. Let's just imagine this, if you would. Let's imagine that the French fries finally catch up to Pastor Mike. And right during the sermon, he has a heart attack right here. And you guys, you know, because you love me, at least most of you, would run forward and look at him and say, you know, I think Pastor Mike's having a heart attack. Let's call the, call the 911. You call 911, and the paramedics come reach, running in here because they're only five blocks away. And they come running in here, and they come with their gurney and all that kind of stuff. And some of you say, you know, it looks to us like Pastor Mike's having a heart attack. And, and the paramedic looks at him and says, you know what? He, you're right. He's got all the symptoms. And, and some of you say, you know, you ought to get those, you know, things that, poof, you know, bolts him back to life. And the paramedic says, you know, I think you've assessed that correctly. That's probably what should be done next. And then, and then, then, then some of you say, well, and then after you do that, you should probably put him on the gurney and take him out and, and get him to, you know, the hospital. And they say, you know, that's a good assessment. I agree. That's, that's exactly the right thing. And while you're getting him out there, put some of the IV in there to bring him back, you know, get his blood sugar up and all that. And then he'll probably be fine. And we'll get him, we'll teach him how to eat celery ourselves and all that kind of stuff. And, 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 and the paramedic says, I agree with you. That's exactly the right course of action. And they grab their gurney and walk off. See, they're the educated ones. They're the ones that know what to do. And of course, it's a thinly veiled plot here. We're the educated ones. Once we see what we're supposed to do, we don't just agree, hey, yeah, that's what we ought to do. In faith, we step out and we do it. Seeing has to lead to faithful action. Look what James writes. He writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to him, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things they need for the body, what good is that? So faith by itself, if it does not have works, is deed. Now look dead. Look right in the middle of that where it says, Go in peace, be warmed and filled. I served at a church once that right over the sanctuary wall, right after the sanctuary door, it said that. It said, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Of course, there's a double-edged meaning to it. It says, leave worship, warmed and filled. And the other meaning was, go out there and serve the world. Go, 
go warm and fill other people. I, I remember one of my kids, my high school kids, yeah, we had great high school kids there, just like we do here. Except they're probably all 50 now or something, I don't know. But Mike Smith was his kid's name. We'd gone to Up With Youth, which is our equivalent of summer games, and Mike had gone to, to Up With Youth, and he's coming out of the thing, and he stops. That's where we shook hands. Teresa and I stood under there, shook hands every day with everybody. And he comes to me, he says, hey, I get that. I said, what do you get, Mike? He says, well, if you love God and see the world, you can't just stand around hoping for the best, can you? I said, nope. He says, we've got to do something. I says, you got it, man. That's what we've got to do. See, what does God want you to do about what you see? Not just an intellectual ascent. See, faith transforms our conduct as well as our thoughts. It changes what we do, not just what we're thinking about. If life remains unchanged, we don't truly believe the, claim, the, the claims of faith that we say we believe. We, we don't truly believe that. In Matthew 7, verse 21, 21, it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father is in heaven. So if you're not doing what God is telling you to do, He's probably not going to respond to you as well. We don't earn salvation by serving. We don't earn salvation by our doing. But our actions do show that our commitment to God is real. Caring for others is not a substitute for faith, but it's a verification of it. So let's lead to the third point. Will you do it? Third point is always, will you do it? I want to tell you three things about this. If you see the brokenness in the world, whether it's close or far, and you decide to do something about it, one of these three and maybe other things are going to come across the plate of your life. Well, the first one is this. If, if you see what God wants you to do and you decide to do it, I'll tell you this. Compassion is going to interrupt your plans. Compassion will absolutely interrupt your plans. It doesn't matter what you're planning to do. It doesn't matter if you're just walking down the grocery store aisle and you're saying, I'm going to get me a, gla- uh, uh, a gallon of milk and somebody with a need walks in front of you. If you're going to help them, your plans are bl- busted. They're broken. They're interrupted. It doesn't matter what you're trying to do. You, you're going to get interrupted. Let me, let me give you the example from Jesus. So here's Jesus. I, I always think he called the disciples fellas. I don't know that. I don't speak that good of Hebrew. But, you know, some people say, hey, boys. And I said, I think he called them fellas because to me that, hey, fellas, let's do this. And so Jesus been on this preaching mission with the disciples, right? And they're worn out. They've been going at it for weeks and days. And many people are coming to the Lord. And he says to them, hey, fellas. Let's go on a retreat. Let's, let's go on up here to a solitary place, to a quiet place. Let's just be with each other. Let's just be in the scriptures. Let's just love on each other and hang out. And, and let's do some of this stuff that, that, that fills our souls. And so they start going. They're sneaking away. Not, not sneaking. Let's go slipping. So Jesus and the fellows are slipping away. And somebody says, hey, hey, everybody. There goes Jesus. Let's follow him. Thousands of people follow Jesus to this quiet place. Well, guess what? When a thousand follow you, it's not quiet anymore, right? And they're standing around. They're, you know, so Jesus says, he looks at them. And he says, all right, we're gonna let, get them in order, boys. We'll start teaching, fellas. We'll start teaching. And so he starts teaching them. And after a while, it starts getting dark. And Jesus says, fellas, they're hungry. We have to feed them. It says in the scriptures, it doesn't say fellas. It says Jesus had compassion on them. Now, I got to tell you this. Every time Jesus has compassion on someone in the scriptures, his plans are interrupted. 
You know, that day he was standing in that house, you know, he's teaching away and they, these friends come with this guy that's paralyzed and they start ripping up the, the ceiling and dropping the guy through it. Jesus missed point two of his whole sermon right there. It interrupted his plan because they dropped him down and he, he blessed him and healed him. It completely interrupted his plans. When Jesus was walking over to heal this young girl that was on her way to death, this woman grabbed her, the, him, his, his cloak. She'd been sick 12 years. It interrupted his plan. He stopped, he blessed her, he healed her. So, so when, when Jesus is off on this retreat with the disciples and all these thousands of people come, he has compassion on them and he says, fellas, you got to feed them. It's dark. They're getting hungry. And they say, we got nothing except a few loaves and fish. He said, give to me. He has compassion on them. He feeds them all. But his plan was interrupted. The goal for him when he went out there that day was to have retreat with his boys, with the fellas. But what happened was thousands were blessed by the miraculous plans of God, but his plan was interrupted. And I'll tell you this. If you have compassion, it's going to interrupt your plans. This happened in this building last week. Our 1914 puppets were getting ready for their afternoon rehearsal. Two o'clock every Sunday afternoon, they rehearse upstairs. Puppets were getting ready. And you know what they planned to do? Listen to loud music, dance around to it, and do puppetry stuff. That's their plan. They get ready for the, the march presentation that they have here and for some of the traveling opportunities they take. And that's not how things went last week at the beginning. Because as the students were gathering and the leaders were all around, a person kind of like the one that I met in Webster City a few years ago walked into our church, walked up to the leader and said, is there anybody here that can help me? And what Jason Alt looked around and, and saw, you know what? I'm the appointed leader to help you today. And so he stepped back. Now, the students were probably waiting impatiently because that's what they do. They're students. I understand that. But, but in their view, Jason stood back, listened to this man's story of what was going on day to day, tried to bless him as best he could, took out his wallet, gave him some cash to help him along the way. Now, it wasn't Jason's plan when he got to puppets last week. His plan was to grab puppets and teach students how to work them in sync with the music and to have some fun, run around the church and goof off and be blessed by God. But when you have compassion, it interrupts the plan. All of a sudden, a 60-minute puppet rehearsal became a 45-minute puppet rehearsal because Jason saw the need that was clearly in front of him. Now, I know Jason. Some of you do, too. He's a sinner, not a saint, just like the rest of us. But he acted upon what he saw. Compassion is always going to interrupt your plans. It always will. Secondly, if you see compassion and you say you're going to do something about it, compassion is going to cost you. And it will likely cost you a lot. You know that story. We preached it just a few weeks ago. Jesus tells a story about a, a, a guy that's coming from Jerusalem down the road to Jericho. And he gets out in the middle of that. And gets a snot beaten out of him. He gets his clothes stolen. He gets all his stuff stolen. A couple guys walk by. They don't help him. And then a guy, a Samaritan, a guy of a different race, different religion, comes by, sees him all beat up there, bleed, starting to bleed out probably. And he slings him up on his donkey, takes him to the inn, rubs him with oil, cleans him up, bandages his wound, then says to the innkeeper, hey, here's, a, here's some money for a couple days if he needs more than that. I'll be back in a little while. And I'll pay whatever he needs. See, compassion is going to cost you. And it's likely going to cost you a lot. When you see the needs of the world and you say, God is not letting me stay out of this, it's going to cost you and cost you likely a lot. A couple of weeks ago, one of my daughters had oral surgery. 
And, uh, of course, my day went to, to that. Now, that's not any surprise. That's my responsibility. I'm a father. I had the checkbook, and I had the ability to get the pharmaceuticals that she needed. So no, no problem. I'm not going to talk about that. What I'm going to talk about is Elois. Elois is a member of this church, too. And Elois wasn't down there with her husband or one of her children. She wasn't even down there with one of her best friends. She was down there with a neighbor, someone that she'd known for a while, who no longer had the ability to drive. Now, I knew Elois was doing all this out of the goodness of her heart because everywhere I was that day, she was there five minutes later. When I was filling out the forms, signing them, right behind me was Elois. When we were waiting in the waiting room for two hours, waiting for the anesthesia to go on, the surgery happened, and then the kid to get awake and start saying funny things, there was Elois. Same thing. All the way through the door. When I took, took our daughter home, got her all squared away, put the ice on her head and all that kind of stuff, went to get the pharmaceuticals, right when I was leaving with my art, mine, here comes Elois. Same thing. It cost her the whole day. You know, it's the responsibility of a parent to do that. But a friend, that's a pretty heavy cost. When you're compassionate on other people, it's going to cost you a lot. When you see what you see in faith, it will absolutely cost you a lot. And I'll tell you what, God be praised. When you ask yourself, will you do something about what you see? Not only will it interrupt your plans, not only will it cost you a lot, but it's going to change lives. Compassion will change lives. This I guarantee you. So Jesus is on the boat with his disciples. They go across the Sea of Galilee. They get to this place called Gerasene. And in the Gerasene, there's a cemetery. And in the cemetery, there's this guy. And he is crazy with a capital K and two E's at the end. This guy is out of his mind. His mind is so broken, so fragmented, that the whole area there is saying, let's just try to contain this guy here. They tried to chain him to the tombstones. But he was so, you know angry, crazy, that he just kept breaking out of the chains and running around, screaming, scaring everybody off from there. I mean, it would have been horrible going to a funeral at that time because, he, you know, Ken the crazy guy was down there in the, in, in, the, in the cemetery. Well, when Jesus gets there, it's a beeline. He goes right to him. And he casts those demons out of this guy. And they jump in the pigs. You know the story. The pigs run into the, to, to the sea and die. And then he's face to face with this guy in the, who's now in his right mind. And the guy begs Jesus, let me come with you. Let me come with you. Jesus says, no. Don't want you to do that. I want you to go back to your hometown and tell them about the good things God has done for you. Now, can you imagine that? See, his town had cast him out because he was so out of his mind. He was so dangerous. And then they see him. And they say, oh my goodness sake, that's Ken. That guy was out of his mind. Look at him. He's cleaned up. He's dressed right. He's shaved. And he's talking normal. You got to believe somebody went up to him and said, Ken, what changed? And he couldn't have stopped but tell him about Jesus. And lives were changed. Not just that one there. Look at the 12 disciples seeing this on the seashore. Look at the people that were seeing the story happen. Look at this story, uh, the, people, the lives of the people that were in that town. Lives were changed. When you have compassion, it will change lives. We have a guy in our church named Bill Stevens. Bill went on our, last, our first two trips to Haiti. We're, we have a partnership with some agencies in Haiti. We're going mission trips a lot. And of course, I encourage you to come. Our next one's in, in March. If you go along, I'll be, I'll be there with you. But 
but Bill went to the first trip we went to Haiti. Now, the place we go to Haiti in Haiti, one of the ministries that we do is we go to this place, this school, this orphanage, where the kids are Haitian kids, and the idea is to raise up leaders within Haiti to help Haiti then in the next generation or so. Because one thing you know about children is they keep growing up so that they'll become leaders of Haiti and can bring Haiti to a better place in just every way than it is right now. So when Bill went down there, he met these two boys. They're 11-year-old twin boys. And he just passionately, with a God's love, fell in love with these two kids. And at that moment, he decided... God is leading me to to sponsor these two kids, to to write their future out of my checkbook. Bill is passionate about this. But I want to tell you, those kids are irrevocably changed. Their lives are irrevocable changed because they went from lost to found at the end of a pen. They went from lost to found at the end of God's spirit moving in Bill's hearts. But I'm going to tell you this because you've got to expand this. It's not just that these boys' lives were changed. Bill's life was changed too. And it's not just that Bill's life was changed. His wife, Amy's life was changed too because she agreed to all this and said, absolutely passionate for God's sake. And and they've done a lot of things in their lives to make themselves financially able to support those kids. So it doesn't just change the lives of these two boys and Bill and Amy. It also changes the lives of their two children. Six lives changed because Bill saw what God was putting in front of him. And he moved to help them. See, if you see what God is, is wanting you to do, that's going to interrupt your plans. It is going to cost you something. And your compassion is going to change lives. Because when we see the needs of the world, when we see the, other, the needs of all the people in the world, we're seeing what God wants us to see. And you see, a disciple cares about those things because here's why. This life, the life we're living right now, it's an introduction to the eternity that you're going to live in. And so when we're living in this life, our goal is to see from the perspective of the eternal God. We're supposed to see what he sees, which is not a little box, and it's not just himself. It's the whole world and all of its people in it. And when we see things from that perspective and begin to act upon them, this is what we become. We become the disciples of Jesus Christ that are seeking to do the business of the transformation of the world. And that's what this is all about. When we're a disciple, we see the needs of all the other people in the world. May we pray. God, our Savior, our Master, our Redeemer, our friend, we pray that you might clarify our vision, that you might allow us to see what it is that you would desire us to see and act upon it in the ways that you would love us to act upon. Now, Now, God, I ask that you just stop all of our hearts right in the middle of our prayers. Because maybe none of us have ever really thought about it this way, Lord. Maybe some of us have never thought, you know, what I see is that which I'm supposed to do about it. So I ask you, Lord, that you might open our minds to stopping us and interrupting our plans in the midst of whatever we're doing. To call us not out of compulsion, but out of love to to go ahead and spend whatever it costs in time and effort and talent to aid that one that you put in front of us or that cause that you call us to. And we ask, Lord, that you bless and transform the lives of those that become involved in what it is that you've helped us see. 
in advance of the great transformation of the world, in advance of that day when every knee shall bow and tongue confess on heaven and earth that you are Lord. We give you thanks. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Take a look at this. There are so many things to love about Marian Methodist. Um, My husband and I were originally drawn to this church years ago when our kids were younger because we'd heard about all of the programs that were available for children. Um, But once we stepped foot in this church for the first time, we were amazed by the the friendliness and the warm welcome we received from the people here. And we knew right away, right then, that this would be our church home. We're also blessed here at Mary Methodist with an amazing staff with caring pastors who preach from the scriptures every week and with talented musicians and our praise team who lead us in um, touching and uplifting music. Um, I truly look forward to worship every week and always feel God's presence here. I choose to give my gifts to Marian Methodist because, uh, simply put, I believe in the mission of this church and I feel so blessed to be a part of it. I want to see the ministry of this church continue to grow so that others may experience this as well. My name is Melanie Donahue and these are the reasons I choose to give to Marian Methodist. Will you please join me in worshiping in this way? Will the ushers please come forward?